We ask that you would do this for your glory. And all God's people said, amen. Psalm 2 says this, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Let's tear off their chains and throw the ropes off of us. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree that he said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter and you will shatter them like pottery. So now, kings, be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the sun or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion for his anger may ignite at any moment. All who take refuge in him are happy. I want to tell you about a time when I had an encounter where I quickly realized I was not in charge. In 2009, I went to Liberia in West Africa, and Liberia had just finished a civil war six years earlier. And as we drove around Liberia, we saw churches with bullet holes in them. We saw buildings that had been bombed out. We saw people that were struggling just to make it. But Liberia had elected a woman named Ellen Johnson Sirleaf as their president. She was actually one of the first, if not the first, woman who was elected head of state in Africa. President Ellen Johnson Sirleaf was trying to restore the country after a civil war. And she was well respected by the community. She was doing a good job of keeping the things moving in a positive direction. But one of the most interesting things about her to me was that she was guarded by a specially trained group of policewomen from India, not from her own country, but from India. And I found that very fascinating that one country would trust another country to protect the most important person in that country. President Ellen Johnson Sirleaf of Liberia. I found that really fascinating. And then one day we were driving around Monrovia, the capital of Liberia, and sirens started to go. And immediately our driver pulled over to the side and I said, well, what's going on? And he said, the president's coming. The president's coming. And like an American, I said, I'm going to take some pictures. So I pulled out my camera and got ready. And I thought, you know what, maybe I should ask, because I don't know what the culture's like here. I don't know if that's acceptable. And I said to the driver, is it okay if I take some pictures of her as she passes by in her motorcade? And the driver said, uh, please don't do that. You might startle the Indian policewoman, and they'll shoot you. And I said, well, I don't really want pictures that bad anyway. <laughs> and uh, so I put my camera down, and then the motorcade started to pass. And the cars went by, and then I saw her car. I saw President Ellen Johnson Sirleaf's car. And really quickly, I saw her silhouette, because the car was moving quickly. And I saw the, the silhouette of the president. And then my eyes moved just a little, you know, just a little bit to the right, and I saw one of these Indian policewomen staring out the window, staring at me, right into my eyes. 
And I only caught her eyes for a minute, and I saw the silhouette of a firearm in her hands. And I only caught her eyes for a minute, but in that minute, her, or in that second, I saw that her eyes were wide open and brooding. And I had this realization, if I make the false move, this woman will kill me. Like, she wouldn't hesitate to kill me. I hadn't encountered that kind of power before and that kind of powerlessness in myself. And as the motorcade went by, I thought, I am not in charge. I am not in charge. That woman in the van in the motorcade is. And if I make one wrong move, I am in trouble and I will get squashed. And honestly, it really sunk me. It kind of discouraged me. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation like that where your life is in someone else's hands and you're just like, wow, I'm powerless. I'm not in charge. It's quite discouraging. This morning, I want to look at Psalm 2, and I want to tell you something. You're not in charge. King Jesus is in charge. But rather than discouraging you and belittling you, when you actually lower yourself before King Jesus, it's meant to lead to freedom and joy. It's meant to bring you into worship, to center your life around him. And when you do that, you actually find freedom in life. King Jesus is in charge, and you're not. In our passage, in verses 1 through 3, we're given this window into a scene that's happening where nations are raging and peoples are plotting. And it's like we're in this war room where the kings of the earth are saying, let's overthrow God and his anointed one. The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. And they say, let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. God had rescued the people of Israel from Egypt and he brought them into the promised land. And their goal was to display God's glory to the surrounding nations. And a king was put in charge of Israel and the king was supposed to be the main one who exhibited the righteousness and justice and love of God to the nations. And as the nations came near to Israel and as they submitted to the king, they were meant to flourish and be blessed. But here we see the kings of the earth and the surrounding nations not wanting to submit themselves under God and his king, but seeing God's rule as cause for revolt. God's rule is cause for revolt. The nations want to buck off the rule of God. The kings want to overthrow the king that God has installed. God's rule is cause for revolt. That's actually not just the ancient kings and the ancient nations. Every human being has this in their heart, this desire to throw off God's rule over them. Everyone in our hearts, we're all wired for this, to say God's rule is cause for revolt. Since the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve, when they rebelled, they just had one rule that they were supposed to follow, and the rest was meant for flourishing. But they disobeyed that law. They disobeyed that rule. And since then, man has been in revolt against God. We don't want him over us. We want to be kings and queen of our own life. We don't want to be morally accountable to him. We are wired for revolt. Now, I realize some of you in here might say, I, I, I see what you're saying, John, but I don't actually believe in God. So I don't really accept that framework that you're operating under. I don't believe in God. I, I align more with an atheistic 
position. In fact, I'm an atheist because the world is such a mess, which is proof that there is no God, right? And I understand that, and I, I actually resonate some with that. I understand where you're coming from because the world is a mess, and I understand how easy it would be to conclude that because the world is a mess, there is no God. But let me ask you a question. I know you have intellectual issues with the existence of God, but underneath that, deeper in your heart, do you want God to exist? Do you want God to exist? Thomas Nagel was a philosopher of ethics, and he famously said this, I want atheism to be true. It isn't just that I don't believe in God and naturally hope that I'm right about my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. I know that you have your intellectual questions, but is there something deeper in your own heart that says, I don't want to believe that there is a God? Why? Why do we think that? Why do people believe that? Well, part of it is your intellectual issues, but part of it is no one wants to be morally accountable to a God. No one wants to radically change their life and center it around what God says. We all want to be kings and queens of our lives. Mortimer Adler was another philosopher of ethics, and he was baptized at the ripe old age of 81 years old, proving it's never too late for anybody. But when asked, Mr. Adler, why did you wait so long to submit to King Jesus? Why did you wait so long to believe in Jesus and turn away from your sins? He said this, it would require a radical change in my way of life, a basic alteration in the direction of my day-to-day -day choices, as well as in the ultimate objectives to be sought or hoped for. The simple truth of the matter is that I did not wish to live up to being a genuinely religious person. And by religious person, he just simply means I don't want to be accountable to God. Now, eventually he turned from that, as I said. But let me ask you, is it possible that your unbelief in God is more than intellectual arguments? We're going to have some Bible studies in the future that engage those arguments but is there something deeper? I want to challenge you to ask yourself the question, do you want to believe that God exists? Or is there something in you that says, I don't want the universe to be that way. I don't want to be accountable to a God. And that affects my belief in a God. The nations rage, the peoples plot, the kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed. What is God's response to all this revolt? What is God's response? When there's bad press about a politician in the newspaper, what do they do? They scurry to put out a good story. When a, when a leader of a country is threatened, they scurry to get them off into a safe bunker. But God, in his power and might, doesn't even get up from his seat. God is enthroned and doesn't even get up from his seat. In verse four through six, it says, the one enthroned in heaven laughs, the Lord ridicules them. And let me just tell you, in this picture, when God is laughing, he's not laughing with them, he's laughing at them. God is seated in power, and the threats against him and his anointed one, he doesn't even get up out of his chair. He remains unthreatened. He sees their arrogance and he 
mocks them. And it's not because God is this mean God. It's just because he is seated on the throne and he sees the arrogance of the kings and the arrogance of the peoples and the arrogance of the nations and says, are you crazy? I am in control of the entire cosmos and I have already installed my king on the throne and it is not you. How dare you try and usurp the king that I have set on the throne? God stays seated and laughs and mocks them. They are not in charge. We are not in charge. God has already installed a king. When God installed a king in Israel, the king had this special relationship with God. It was as if God had aligned his throne directly with that king, as if God was displaying his rule and his righteousness and his justice through that king. And therefore, he protected that king. And any king of the nations that came against his king, God would come against. Because God has a special relationship with that king, which is why he, was so, he is so angry in our passage. In verse 7 through 9, the king speaks. And the king says this, I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, God says to the king, you are my son today, I have become your father. When he says this, he's not talking about a relationship with God where God gave birth to him somehow. That father-son language means that special relationship. It is as if the king has come into the family of God and is now his son, and God is now the father of the king. We often get this confused, and, and people think that it has to do with God like giving birth to the king, but that's not what it means. It means that there's a special relationship, and you'll recognize this terminology from elsewhere in the New Testament. When Jesus was baptized, he was dunked into the Jordan River. And a voice from heaven came and said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. You see, all the kings of Israel were flawed. Some of them followed God a little bit. Some of them followed God not much. Some of them worshiped idols. Some of them aligned with foreign nations. But there was one king who was the perfect king. There was one king who did everything that God, Father God told him to do, and that's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the king. Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the king that God has installed. In Jesus' baptism, he is installed as king. In his crucifixion, he proves that he's a servant king dying on behalf of sinners. In his resurrection, it is his coronation as king. And when he ascends into heaven and sits down at the right hand of God, it is him ruling and reigning in power. God has decreed that Jesus Christ is king. Christ reigns. And what this means for us is that Jesus is the one who's in a special relationship with God. Sometimes when I talk to people about Jesus and giving their life to King Jesus, they say, look, I'm not very religious and I have sort of this special thing going on with God. And I pray to God and I try and be a good person and you don't really understand how I sort of negotiate my relationship with God. Jesus is the one who has a special relationship with God. And you can only have relationship with God through King Jesus. There's no sidestepping him and sort of saying, I want to get to God another way. King Jesus is the only way to get to God. Secondly, 
you didn't make Jesus king. I hear a lot of people say, I made Jesus king of my life. You didn't make Jesus king. He's already on the throne, seated with power and authority. You simply came to surrender to his power and authority. You simply recognize that you had been living your life as if you were king, but there's someone else who was resurrected from the dead and ascended to power, and he is king, and you simply kneel down. You know, this week I had to come to my own point of surrendering to the king. I realized as I read this text that it's very pointed. It's very pointed. It's basically saying, Jesus is king, and you're not. Surrender. And as I thought about our first Sunday here, and I thought about wanting to emphasize really who we are at New City Fellowship as God's blended family, and the joy that we experience in the forgiveness of sins, and the power that's given to us in the Holy Spirit, and the fact that God is weaving us together as a blended family from every tribe and nation and people and tongue, I wrestled a little bit because this passage is so pointed. Do I want to preach on this? And then I thought, who am I? Who am I not to tell you and surrender myself before the king of the universe? If I don't preach about the king, who am I? What kind of church is this? It would be my church, but it's not my church. It's King Jesus' church. And if I didn't tell you about King Jesus, how would I be loving you? And I had to come to my own point of surrender to tell you Jesus is king and you're not. And the only time you can find life and hope is by surrendering to him. The scope of King Jesus' rule is the entire world. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with an iron scepter and you will shatter them like pottery. The scope of Jesus' rule includes every nation, every person, every square inch of the entire cosmos. Jesus is Lord. The scriptures tell us in Philippians 2 that every person will come in an encounter with Jesus Christ and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Christ is Lord. And I want to encourage you now. Bow now. Surrender now to King Jesus. It will be a lot prettier if you surrender now to him as king. Every human being is on a collision course with the king of the cosmos. And like a water drop taking on a freight train, there is no negotiation. You must surrender. Your eternal destiny is dependent on how you respond to Jesus now. Lower yourself. Humble yourself. Confess your sins to him. Ask him for his forgiveness. Turn the loyalty of your life from yourself to him because he's like no other king and he rules over a kingdom that's like no other kingdom he's a servant king though he has so much power in his great love for us he came and died on the cross as a servant he died as a criminal though he was a king and he took the sin of the world that sinners might find reconciliation with God through placing their trust in him Jesus was hung on a cross, punished for you and me, but he didn't stay there on the cross. He was put in the tomb and then resurrected from the dead, proving that he was king. See, he's like no other king because no one has ever been so high and yet sacrificed himself by becoming 
so low. Jesus Christ is the ultimate king and he's the ultimate servant. And he serves you by dying in your place. And his kingdom is like no other kingdom. In Isaiah 42, the prophets predict the coming of King Jesus. And they say this, and I want you to let your heart hear these words. And let your longing be stirred. This is my servant. I strengthen him. This is my chosen one. I delight in him. I have put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. He will set things right. He will not cry out or shout or make his voice heard in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed. He will not put out a smoldering wick. He will faithfully bring justice. He will not grow weak or be discouraged until he has established justice on earth. The coasts and the islands will wait for his instruction. No one has ever been so powerful and yet gone so out of his way to care for the powerless. No one sees all the brokenness that exists and all the injustice in our world and yet isn't discouraged, but is utterly committed to set everything right when he returns. No one is so strong and yet so tender with the weak. Jesus is king and his kingdom is like no other kingdom. Does your heart long for a ruler like that? Have we ever seen a ruler like that who has so much power and yet it doesn't go to his head? He serves the weakest humans and will not crush them. Jesus is king and his kingdom is like no other kingdom. So let me encourage you. Surrender to the king. Surrender to the king. In verse 10, it says this, so now kings, be wise. Receive instruction, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. Pay homage to the son. That means worship the son, or some translations say kiss the son, or he will be angry and you will perish in your rebellion, for his anger may ignite at any moment. Surrender to the king. I know this language seems weird. It makes Jesus seem like a fussy two-year-old who's throwing a tantrum, but that's not it at all. Jesus is in the process of making all things new. And he wants you to humble yourself before him and take part of the renewal of all things with him. He is in the process of bringing sinners to God and making himself known and making his kingdom known to people who are far from God. And he's angered when people resist and say, I don't want to be a part of it. And Jesus' great love, he is going to come and banish all evil forever. That is his judgment. His judgment actually comes from his love because he wants to set all things right. And he's inviting you to take part of it. Don't perish in your revolt. Lower yourself before the king and take part of him making all things new. In fact, really, that's what we're doing when we join together to worship Jesus as God's blended family. We're saying, there is a king and it's none of us. But in his great mercy, we get to be part of him drawing people from every tribe and tongue and nation together so that we can worship him. In the amazing way that this passage closes out, you know, it could say, all who surrender to him are miserable the rest of their lives. 
All who kneel before King Jesus spend the rest of their lives wishing that they hadn't. All who worship the king feel the weight of oppression from the king. But it doesn't say that, does it? All who take refuge in him are happy. All who take refuge in him are happy. All who lower themselves before the king, all who worship the king, all who change the direction of their life and center around King Jesus are happy. So let me encourage you to surrender because in surrendering, you find true joy and lasting peace and lifelong freedom. This past week, I was out of town at a church planning conference. And it was a wonderful time to be with <clears throat> around 5,000 church planners from around the globe and just to kind of pick each other's brains and hear what's going on and what God's doing in other cities. And it was really an amazing time. And when I left the conference, I, I called an Uber. And the, the guy came and picked me up. And I kind of needed to unwind for about five minutes and just clear my head. And, and then we started talking. And it turns out my Uber's driver's name was Gregory. And he... He was originally from Puerto Rico. And he kind of asked questions about the conference. Where were you? Oh, it was a church planning conference. Oh, are you a pastor? Yes, I'm a pastor. And it kept going. And I said, Gregory, do you, are you part of a church here in Orlando? Because I just met some great, great church planners that live right around here in Orlando. And he said, uh, actually, my dad's a pastor. And um, I, I, I used to go to church, but I haven't been in a while. I said, Gregory, why? Why, have, why haven't you been? And he goes, there's just some things in my life that I can't quite overcome. I said, well, tell me, man. I'm not going to judge you. And he said, look, I, I have a really bad drum problem, and I just haven't been able to kick it. And every time I try and kick it, I, I, I just can't stay clean. I said, Gregory, man, I love you. When was the last time you used? He said, yesterday. I said, okay, okay. And, and are you married? And he said, yeah, I'm married. My wife's trying to help me. She's not going to leave me. I'm struggling, and I just can't do this, so I don't want to go to church because I am not really in control of this issue in my life. And I said, Gregory, you need to stop trying to take control of this issue and give up. You need to stop trying to take control of this issue and instead surrender because I know a king who's a gracious king. And no matter how many times you fall back into using, he will always take you back and he will always forgive you. You need to stop trying and start surrendering. King Jesus will take you in your shame. King Jesus will take you in your sin. He'll take you in your weakness and he'll bring forgiveness in your life and he'll empower you with the Holy Spirit and he'll put you in a community of people who love you, who are going to walk with you and won't judge you, but know they're sinners just like you and are going to help you walk in freedom. So give up trying to be in control, Gregory, and surrender. And as we pulled up to the airport, I felt like we had connected. He was nodding his head as I was talking. I could tell he, he, he was being moved towards that. And as we pulled up to the, to the airport, I thought, I really feel like I should give this guy a hug, but I don't want to weird him out, you know? So we pulled up to the airport. I said, Gregory, I put my hand on his shoulder, and he, I said, man, there's hope. And he said, Esperanza. I said, yeah, Esperanza, there's hope. And he said, Pastor, I'm going to get out of the car and give you a hug. I said, bring it, bring it, Gregory. He said, I'm already feeling like heading in this direction. I feel 
freedom. I feel life. I feel peace in the surrender. Friends, freedom, life, and peace is not found in you controlling your life. It's found into surrendering to the king who is the most gracious, powerful, forgiving king ever. And I hope that today as you have encountered the king, you find a new freedom and a new motivation to kneel down before him and worship him. Let's pray. King Jesus, we worship you this morning. We confess that in our heart of hearts, we are rebellious. We want to be on your throne. And in our foolishness, we actually think we could do a better job than you. We turn away from that now. And we ask that you would forgive us. And that you would give us a fresh picture of your rule and reign. Ephesians says that you are in power for the benefit of the church. You actually love us and care for us and include us in what you're doing. And so we pray this morning that we would freshly surrender to you. You are our king and we love you. And all God's people said, would you stand with me now?